0: Morning. Morning. I have been looking forward a lot to what we're going to get to do this morning. We're going to start a series through the book of Genesis. Um, We thought for a long time and we decided to call it Genesis, as you can see from up here on the screen. And one of the things I'm going to walk through this morning is a little bit of why we thought this was an important series for us to do. Um, But before, I just want to read Genesis chapter 1, which you might know it's it's a little bit longer scripture reading, so kind of buckle in. We'll, We'll go through this. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis 1, which if, if you don't know the Bible very well, is just right at the beginning. Um, and, and I'm going to read Genesis 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And, and part of the reason why I want to just have the time where we're going to read this extended passage is because here at Life Bible Fellowship Church, we believe that the Bible is God's word, which means if I just read this and walked off the stage, we would have heard from God this morning. So it's worth the time that we'll take to do this. So the the passage will be up here on the screen. We'll be scrolling it through if you don't have a Bible, but otherwise you can follow along in your own Bible. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and then moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening. And there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is God's word. Let's take a moment and pray together before we go on. Father, we believe that you're a God who has spoken. You've spoken everything into existence. And then you've also spoken to us. Father, I just pray that um, whatever baggage we're bringing in this morning, I pray that you would address it. I pray that you would speak to our hearts right now. I pray that you would lead us to see you more clearly, to worship you more fully, to stand in awe of you more reverently. I pray for your work. I pray for your work through me and all that I say, that it will be good, that it will be helpful, that it will be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, let me just ask a quick question. How many of you walked in this morning with problems on your mind? Yeah. Probably most of us, there's something on your mind, you don't have enough money, or your job is frustrating, or um, there's problems in your marriage that you're dealing with, or there's some kind of sin or habit that you just, you, you can't figure out how to kick. You're saying, I'm just, I'm trying, I really want to stop doing this, I just can't figure out how to stop doing this. Um, You walked in this morning with problems, Um, and I'm not going to speak for you, but there might even be some of you that are like, all right, so we're going through Genesis. What does this have to do with right now? I've got a real issue. I've got something pressing. I've got something in my life I'm trying to figure out. And what I want to say is that I believe not only this morning, but this journey through Genesis that we're going to take is going to be one of the most profound ways that we can address the problems that we feel like are pressing. And it's not going to be addressed through really quick responses. It's going to be addressed by going back to the foundational realities about who God is, who we are, what the earth is, and what all of this is for. Sometimes we overcomplicate our problems. I'm not going to say that anybody in here has done this. um, But, you know, there are a lot of health books out there, a lot of dieting books, A lot of books about how to be healthy. Now, some people do have specific health concerns that make it more complicated. But for the vast majority of us, if we wanna be healthy, we've gotta do two things, right? You gotta eat well and you gotta exercise. And yet we dramatically overcomplicate the issue. I want you just to think about other things in your life. Sometimes we do this relationally as well. There's lots of great books about relationships. I've read many of them. Many of them are very good and helpful. But how many of our relational problems just come back to the simple fact that we don't listen very well and we're unwilling to think about what it's like to be the other person? How many of our core problems in life would be addressed if we got back to the foundations? If in some ways we got back to the basics. And I just want you to entertain from it, especially if you're sitting here saying, I was hoping for a sermon that would address my issue. I want to give you some hope that I believe You're about to hear a sermon that will address your issue, not in deep detail, but that it will address the foundational realities about who God is, who we are, what the earth is, and what the purpose of all of this is for. If we get those things right, if we embrace those realities, Things are going to change in our life. Our perspective is going to change in our life. Things are going to change in society. How much of the violence and dysfunction in society exists simply because we've lost sight of who God is, who we are, what the earth is, and what all of this is for. That's what Genesis addresses. And now I want to just let you know, because it's the first week of the series, so so big picture. Um, Some of you might in your heads be thinking, Genesis is a long book. Like, how long are we going to be doing this? How many years can I pencil in for the book of Genesis? Um, And and we're going to be going through Genesis in kind of a creative way that's different than how we normally go through books. So what we're going to do is this. I'll tell you right now, we're going to spend 17 weeks in the book of Genesis. There'll be some breaks along the way where where we'll um, have a break for Advent. but we're going to spend 17 weeks, which doesn't sound like enough to cover 50 chapters. But each week, what we'll do is we'll have an extended portion that we're going over in Fraud strucks. Um, So today, it's just kind of one chapter that we're going over. But some weeks, there will be two or three or even five or six chapters that we're just kind of touching on, saying, here's what happens in these chapters. And then within that section, there will be a specific passage that we'll zero in on and really walk through in more detail. So for example, today, I read through Genesis chapter uh, 1 until Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Today, we're just going to go through in detail the first five verses. By the way, when we go through like six chapters at a time, probably not going to read all six chapters here. But what I do encourage you to do is you can just kind of read along. You can read in preparation. You can read Genesis 2 in preparation for next week, and then we'll go over it together. So that's how we're going to go through the book. Um, I also just want to address, because Genesis 1, I want to be able to just kind of walk through these first five verses. But I also know Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, there's a lot of baggage and so there's a lot of questions that we have. So I want to talk just a little bit about how we're even approaching this. Because there's different ways that Christians approach the creation story that we just read through. So uh, I'll give some options. Um, Option number one is that there's a large group of people that believe what we've got here is just a straightforward account that God created the world in six 24-hour days. It's just straightforward. There was evening, there was morning. We've got six days. Um, After all, God's God. That's not hard for him. He certainly doesn't need more time than that. In fact, he doesn't even need six days. Just boom, the world is created. So that's one way that this is taken. Um, another way, and, th- and there's always variations on this, but another way that this is taken is that the word day doesn't always just mean 24-hour day. Sometimes day means a more extended period of time, and then, then there's a couple things in Genesis that lead some people to think maybe there's some gaps between the days. And so we're basically told there, there were six specialized periods of time that God did special creation, and then there was long periods of time in between those, uh, those acts of creation, Um, that that's a possibility that there's a way to get there from the passage and so there's probably some of you in this church that something like that that that's what you hold to that's what you think Genesis 1 is teaching Um, and then there's others that hold very much to the idea that this is telling us the truth about what happened but that it's telling us the truth in a more sort of creative poetic way that's not meant to be taken straightforwardly and sequentially And some of you might say, that makes a lot of sense. Some of you might say, I'm concerned about that. Aren't we supposed to take the Bible literally and take it as God's word? Um, And I would just say this. Some of you are familiar with the book of Job. The book of Job is a great, beautiful, difficult book in the Old Testament about a man who suffered profoundly and then talked to his friends about his suffering. If you've read the book, you know why I said friends, because they don't really help him. Um, Now, the book is poetic. Here's what I believe. I believe Job was a real person who did exist. I think the New Testament points back to that. The Old Testament points back to that. I don't think when this real man, Job, and his real friends sat around talking about his suffering, they talked about it in verse. I think what we have in Job is a creative poetic retelling of something that did really happen that gets us to the point of understanding what really did happen. And so the people that would take a poetic stance on Genesis 1 aren't saying God didn't create or none of this matters. They're just saying this seems to be a more poetic way of approaching this that doesn't require us to say there were these six determined days and that we've got to trace back the exact date of the earth, but that it's just a creative way of God talking about how he created after all seven days in a work week that this kind of makes sense. So there obviously are other views that would be kind of further out in how seriously we take the Bible. But I throw those three out there just to say, if you hold one of these three views and you're approaching Genesis, I think you're gonna be fine with how we're talking about it. At LBF Church, we believe that the events we're talking about did really happen, that this is not a mythological book, that this is a historical book. And at the same time, we try to major on the majors and minor on the minors and say, we're, we're not going to get into the details of talking about all of this, about wh- which of these views is the best. Um, I am going to do, so some of you um, listen to the LBF Church uh, podcast that we put out every two weeks, which is supplemental to what we do on Sundays. We are, we are going to do an episode on this where I'm going to recommend a bunch of resources because some of you, some of you right now are like, let's just get on with it. Who cares? But some of you are saying, this is, this is a sticking point for me. I need some help here. So I'm going to recommend a bunch of books and recommend some different uh, podcasts that might help you on this. But that's just how we're approaching this. We're going to broadly say, all right, we're not going to get down into the weeds about all the details, but we are going to have some areas where we take our stand. And I'll just put up a statement right now that kind of explains where we take our stand. One God created everything out of nothing. You're going to see this clearly just in these first five verses. We believe there is one God that he created everything. And maybe this just goes to reinforce it. He created everything out of nothing. He didn't create out of previously discovered materials. We are not, Phil just talked about the fact that each of us, because we're created by God, we're not an accident. This world is not an accident. We are not the result of a long line of accidents. One God created everything out of nothing. And now what we're going to do in walking through these five verses, we're going to get a view into the creation story and we're going to get a view into what we learn about this God. There is no important issue in the problems that you're facing than what you believe to be true about God. And these first five verses are packed full of foundational truths about God. And so we start straightforwardly, verse one, we just start with the source of creation. In the beginning, God. Just notice something real quick. The author doesn't give any background for God. He doesn't explain God. And I didn't get into this as much. When we talk about the author throughout the series, we're going to be talking about the author as Moses, because that seems to be the most likely situation from what the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us. So Moses doesn't give this long explanation. Well, in the beginning, well, well, real quick, before the beginning, there's a God and he's always existed and was always there. He just says, in the beginning, God. He doesn't explain God, he assumes God. In the beginning, before anything else came into being God. And then he explains, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the heavens don't, almost certainly don't refer to sort of what we think of sometimes when we say heaven, going to heaven. We're just talking about the skies. We're talking about the entire universe. He set into being the entire created order. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now something that's been really interesting to me is that there are a lot of ancient creation stories Some of you know this, that Mesopotamia, Egypt, Babylon, there are different ancient cultures that have creation stories, and some of them have similarities and have overlap with what we get here in Genesis. But when you look at these ancient creation myths, there's one very distinct thing that's different in Genesis. And that's that in all these other creation myths, typically the way that the physical world comes into being is through some kind of conflict between the gods, So maybe you start with two very powerful gods and they come together and they have a battle and the result, an emanation from that battle is that we get the physical world. And then maybe they create other gods to be over the different supernatural areas, over the sea and over the land and over the mountains. Typically, the world is seen as the result of a conflict between many gods and then the phenomena come about. Genesis is in stark contrast to this. And even some of these creation myths predate Genesis which means it's entirely possible that Moses and the Jews were aware of these creation myths. And they said, our story's different. This is going to stand out like a sore thumb. In the beginning, one God created everything out of nothing. He didn't need anyone else. It's not the result of a conflict. It's a result of his good creation. By the way, the God that you are crying out to when you are dealing with the trauma and the problems in your life is an almighty God who created everything that we see. One God created everything out of nothing. And oddly enough, right after this great statement in verse one, we have the first problem that's ever talked about in verse two. And you might even call this the purpose of creation. So in verse two, it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now now we might not, as we read in English and as we think about it through our modern eyes, we might not catch this as much, but the author seems to be setting up there's a problem. So we have the first initial statement, God set everything into motion. God created the heavens and the earth, but before he does anything to it, look at the state of the heavens and the earth. It is formless and void. It's formless and empty. And not only that, he says darkness was over the surface of the deep. Let let me just read you a quote from Alan P. Ross, who wrote a great book on Genesis. It's called Creation and Blessing. He says, darkness throughout the Bible represents evil and death. It is not conducive to life. Some uses of the motif of darkness include the plague of darkness in Egypt, the wicked, wicked enemies, death, the day of the Lord on judgment, and a parallelism with calamity. Darkness is not good. Then he says, neither is darkness a positive good in Genesis. Rather, it is dispelled by the first act of creation. In other words, he's saying, the author seems to be pointing us towards the fact that this is not good. The initial creation, it's not good. It needs to be fixed. Even before there was any sin and brokenness in the world, even before the curse came into the world, God looked at the world and said, something needs to be done about this. Now, let me just tell you real quick why I love that. Before sin entered into the world, the God who created the world looked at the world and realized it needed to be fixed. The God who is God Almighty is also the God who redeems. He's also the God who looks at unformed and empty situations and brings order to those. We start with a problem. We start with formlessness. We start with emptiness. We start with darkness, but we get a little bit of hint of something good is about to happen because who's hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. I love this because I think this is just a little bit of a hint of something big's about to happen. God is at work here. So right now, God created, and I guess something is better than nothing, so it's good that it's there, but just wait, something big is coming. And in verse 3, something big starts to come. We get the method of creation here. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And this makes sense, if for nothing else, because in verse 2, what was one of the major problems? Darkness. Darkness. We had darkness. So God sheds the light on the darkness. But don't miss how this all came about. It doesn't say God flipped on the light switch. How did light get onto the world? God said. God spoke and light happened. There's a great story in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Um, in fact, I think it shows up in, in, all, um, in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. And it's a story of a centurion. who He was an important person in Israel. And he had a servant who was dying of sickness. And so he comes to Jesus to ask Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus is, is willing to oblige. So he says, all right, let's go to your house and I'll heal your servant. And the man says, no, 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 no. I don't feel like I'm worthy to have you come into my home. But I know you can just speak and he'll be healed. All you have to do is say the word. And I love it because then the centurion says, he's, he says, the reason why I know this is because I'm somebody that I speak and other people do stuff. He was an important person and he had soldiers under them. And if he spoke, they did stuff. Were any of you in the military? No, a bunch of you were. When your drill sergeant or your commanding officer said something, what happened? You did it. Things happen. Sometimes, some of you are in positions, even with, with your work, where you speak. And things happen. We're trying to work on this with our kids. We haven't been entirely successful. For a while, Karina was um, trying to teach the kids the phrase, to hear is to obey. So I thought was pretty good. We speak, things happen. I'll let you know how it goes. But anyway, Jesus, and this man is right about Jesus. Jesus simply says the word. He says, your servant's healed. And his servant was healed. Not only that, Jesus was able to speak to the creative order. Remember when Jesus is on a boat with his disciples and there's a storm and everybody's worried about things? Jesus doesn't come out and say, God, please stop the wind. Jesus says, wind, stop. And the wind stops. You got to be pretty powerful if all you have to do is speak and things happen. But that's not even the end of the story. I, I, I want you to get the full extent of this. This whole idea of God speaking, of God creating through His word, is something that's reiterated through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. In fact, let me read for you Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of His mouth. Then on in verse 9, it says, For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. You know how God created? God created through His Word. Now, let me take it another step. There's another book of the Bible that begins with the words, in the beginning. Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John, chapter 1, begins with the words, in the beginning, and some of you will be able to finish this, in the beginning was the Word. Now you learn as you read a little bit further on in Genesis one, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the son of God clearly there. He says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but he describes Jesus as the word. And he says, the word was in the beginning with God. The word was God and he was in the beginning with God. And then he says, all things were created through him. And in fact, Paul reiterates that in Colossians chapter one. He says, everything was created through Jesus, through the son. Now just think about that for a second. That's a slight distinction. What John and Paul don't say is Jesus created everything. What they say is God created everything through Jesus. And according to John chapter one, Jesus is the word. Here's what I want you to catch here. This this is beyond words about how amazing these first three verses are. Verse 1, we get God, presumably God the Father setting things in motion. Verse 2, we get the Spirit. And the Spirit is not this impersonal force of God moving. He is a personal Spirit. Verse 3, we have God create through His Word. And not only is God's Spirit personal, God's Word is personal. In the first three verses of the Bible, we have the first whispers of the Trinity. We have the first whispers that God is not an isolated God. God is a relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in complete harmony. We've got the Spirit over the waters. We've got the Word in creation. We've got the Father setting things in motion. Now, let me just say one more thing. In fact, I'm going to bring in the beginning of verse 4 for a moment here, just just to take this in. So he creates the light. Verse 4 is the first of many times that God says something to this effect. God saw that the light was good which at least means a couple things. First of all, this just means the creation or the physical world is good. Sometimes we can get the strange idea in our heads, mainly as Christians in the West, I think, that um, the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. That is not a Christian belief the physical is good. The physical is not just neutral. The physical is good. The physical is created by God. Now we're going to see in a couple weeks when we go through chapter three, the physical is now cursed because of what we've done to the world. But the physical even now is still something that's good. But here's the second thing that we see from this that you can just pass right over. Why in the world does God think he's the one that gets to decide what's good? Have you ever had, sometimes um, I'll be in the green room before the sermon and, and we pass because the band all, all kind of comes back through afterwards. Um, and, uh, and I'll say, you guys did a great job. That was really great. And they'll say, oh, you, you don't even realize we missed a cue and that guy dropped you and he broke a string. And they'll, they'll start talking about all the things that went wrong. And I'll say, oh, I had no idea. Apparently I'm not the best person to make a judgment about what is and isn't a good musical performance. God takes it upon himself to look at the creation and say, this is good. And the reason why God says this is good is because God is the one who decides what's good. God is the almighty. God is the redeemer. God is the judge. God is the one who says this is good. In fact, he's also the one that later on in chapter two says that something is not good. And for many of us, All right, God Almighty, we're good with that. We we like the idea that God is all powerful. God the Redeemer, we like that. We like the idea that God cares about us uh, enough to fix brokenness. God the judge we're not so keen on in the 21st century in the United States. We're not so crazy about that one. But let me just warn you, as we go through especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis, get used to God as judge because it is one of the foundational things revealed to us in Genesis. God is judge here because he's the one who decides what's good and what's not. God is the judge in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree. You know why he gets to tell them what to eat and what not to eat? Because God's the judge. In chapter 3, when they do eat, he kicks them out of the garden. You know why God gets to kick them out of the garden? Because God's the judge. In chapter 4, you have Cain killing Abel. I know spoilers all over the place (laughs) if you don't know this stuff. (laughs) Cain kills his brother Abel and God banishes him further. You know why God can banish Cain? Because God is the judge. Chapter Starting in chapter 6, God drowns the world to start over with Noah and his family because God is the judge. And chapter 11, God scatters the nations by confusing their language when they're building the Tower of Babel because God, God is the judge. You might not be comfortable with the idea of God as the judge, but your comfort level doesn't determine what's true about God. God is the judge from the very beginning. He's the one who speaks creation into being and he's the one who decides what's good and what's not. God is almighty. God is the redeemer. God is the judge. And now I want to just hit on this last part of verses four and five. Talk about the pattern of creation. I'll I'll talk about a little bit of what comes after here. But we see the pattern that that follows throughout the rest of Genesis 1. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness. He called the light day and he called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Um, This is the pattern that's followed throughout each of the six days. God speaks something into being Then he pronounces that it's good. And then it moves on to the evening and to the morning. Um, but, But let me just walk through something even further. Remember back to verse two, the world had a problem when God first spoke it into being. So the world had a problem. There was darkness and the world was formless and empty. Now just think about this for a second. If the world is formless and empty, two things need to happen to fix it. You've got to form what's formless. You've got to fill what's empty. The six days of creation start with three days of forming and then three days of filling. In fact, let me put it up here. Let me just show you a little visual of it. He spends three days forming. He forms by separating the light from the darkness. He forms by separating the waters above from the waters below. He forms by separating the water from the dry land. And then he spends the days filling. And and I put this parallel because you can see he fills in a parallel way. In day one, he separated the light from the darkness. In day four, he fills the night and the day with lights. Day two, he separates the water above and the water below. Day five, he fills the sky with birds and he fills the water with sea creatures. Day three, he separates the water from the lands and ends up with dry land. Day six, he fills that dry land with wild animals, domesticated animals, all kinds of animals that creep, and with mankind. God fixes by forming and then by filling. And, and there is a pattern to all of this, but let me just say a couple things because there's a couple times that the pattern is broken. And sometimes when the pattern is broken is when you really should perk up and listen. And, and next week, we're going to get a lot into the creation of humanity because we'll walk through chapter two and there's more detail there, but I'll just touch on it briefly. Verse 26 is a big marker in Genesis that breaks the pattern. And it breaks the pattern because instead of God just saying, let there be, he sort of thinks about what he's about to do. And also in verse 26, he doesn't say, let me create mankind in my image. He says, let us create mankind in our image. Now, I'll just tell you that there is debate on these verses. So some people say he's, he's talking to the angels. I just don't buy this at all for a couple of reasons. First of all, if God said to the angels, let's create mankind in our image, the angels would have a couple of problems with this. First of all, they'd say, We haven't really been involved in this whole creation process. Been pretty much all you, big guy. Like You're the one doing it. We're not involved in it. Secondly, the angels don't have the same image that God has. It's not a shared image. The first three verses of Genesis give us a whisper of the Trinity. When we get here, we get another whisper of the Trinity. God creates mankind in his image. Next week, we'll talk a lot about that. But that sets mankind apart. We are not just the final product of a long evolutionary chain. We are specially created by the God of the universe and made in his image. And then the second break is in chapter two when we get to day seven and there's no more creating to be done. So God rested. You're like, what, well, Got God tired? What's going on here? <laughs> God's not tired. God's done. God doesn't rest because he's worn out. God rests because he's finished. With all of the creating that He did, God formed the Earth, and then He filled the Earth. Now now here's what I want to do. I, I, I want to come back to just this, this foundational reality that we talked about. One, God created everything out of nothing. Think about, right now, just think about what is the biggest thing on your mind that you're saying, I need God to move in my life to solve this. I need him to give me the power to overcome this sin. I need him to give me the words to speak to to these people that I'm at odds with. I need him to provide for my physical needs. I need him to, to give me guidance on this really tricky situation that I just can't figure out. Here's where I need God. And what I don't have for you right now is just a quick four-step solution of what you do about that. But what I do have is at least four things that these, cha- these opening verses in Genesis tell us are true about God. The God that you're crying out to is God Almighty. He made it all. He controls it all. The God you're crying out to is God the Redeemer. God looks at broken situations and broken people and he fixes them. The God that you're crying out to is God the judge. He's the one who decides what's good and what's bad, and he's the God that you can trust to bring final justice in the end if you feel like vindication is needed. And the God that you're crying out to is God the life giver. God that breathes life into things that would otherwise be dead. That is the God that you're crying out to. Now, let me take it even one step further. And I shouldn't say obviously, but... It seems like the natural thing. We read Genesis 1. We, we want to respond in worship. We want to respond in wonder. This is the God. This is the great God. He's made everything. Of course we owe everything to him. Of course we should bow the knee to him. Of course we should stand in, in fear and wonder at who he is. That God, that God of wonder that we see in Genesis 1 is the God who thought enough about you to send his one and only son. Sometimes we just start with Jesus, which is not a bad place to start. But the very first thing that we learn about God is God sent his son and we have Jesus. And we like Jesus and Jesus died for our sins and that's good. Genesis doesn't start with God sent his son to die for your sins. Genesis starts with God is almighty, God is redemptive, God is the life giver, God is the judge. And it's that God who sent his son for you. In fact, think of it even a little bit further. God fixed the earth by forming it and filling it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, here's your testimony. I don't know the specifics of your story, but here's your testimony. Your testimony is that you had been conformed to the image of this world. You were battered along. Really, you were formless and God came to you and he formed you and he's forming you into the image of his son. When God came to you, you were empty whether you knew you were empty or not, and God filled you with love and filled you with hope and filled you with the Holy Spirit. You are a believer in Jesus because you have been formed and you have been filled. So it seems only appropriate that we not only respond with thinking about this and addressing our problems, but we respond with what we get to do this morning. We respond by celebrating the ultimate sacrifice that brought us into the family of God by taking communion together. And if you're going to be helping out with communion, you can head to the back and help right now. When we take communion, we celebrate. We, we sort of relive the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross. Because he took bread and he took a cup and he gave that illustration. He gave that vision, that, that visual of his body being broken for us and his blood being shed for us. When we celebrate this, we are celebrating not necessarily the creation that God brought about, we are celebrating the new creation that God brought about. That God not only made you, but God remade you through Jesus. And the price of remaking you was the death of his one and only son. As we get ready to celebrate communion now, we get ready to celebrate the great work that God did. And as we just read all of this and talked about all this amazing creation that he brought about, Let's take all of that wonder and all of that worship and all of that awe and live and think in light of all that he's done through making us new. And as the elements are past, the band is going to play a song for us that's a powerful retelling, not only of what we read about in creation, but what we experience in the new creation that God brings through Jesus. So let me pray for us as we prepare for this time. Father God, Father God, You are such a gracious and good God. You are so faithful. You're so merciful to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power in creation. And thank you for your grace and power in the new creation that you've brought about. I pray that you will be honored and I pray that our hearts will be encouraged as we take these elements and celebrate the price that Jesus has paid for us. Pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.